Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Did we take for granted that we had competent intelligence? What is the whistleblower laid bare? For us as Canadians. And I know we got a lot of stuff to worry about, but if you got to worry about it, maybe we should deal with reality. Uh, today, I'd like to welcome Christian Lupret, political scientist with Queen's University, and also an author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft. Christian Luprecht, how are you? Happy Sunday to you. Good afternoon, Arlene. You know, just the title of your book kind of gives us a reason why we should care about this, Christian. I mean, the whole the whole country is deciding what's important to them, what do they hang on to, but there's been a drip, drip, drip here. And from all your research, is this an important moment before we begin? Well, at least in a couple of ways. One is that it's often said that intelligence is our first line of defense. It's how we anticipate the threats and the challenges, the risks that are coming our way. And so it's meant sort of as a canary in the cold mine, early warning system. And this is why governments all over the world, democratic and otherwise, pay for intelligence, both foreign intelligence and domestic intelligence. Um, now, of course, in a democracy, it's up to the government of the day to decide whether to act, how to act. Uh, but certainly it is puzzling that uh, we have a hostile authoritarian um, state actively undermining those democratic institutions and values that the government not only uh, claims to cherish and espouse, but that, of course, we as Canadians value. And so a bit puzzling kind of that we, for years, keep trying to kick the can down the road rather than to act on it. The other part is, of course, that I think we're rather naive about national, national security intelligence mm -hmm. in this country, in part because for decades we've thought we're far away from the world's problems. And so my assessment of the political class in this country is that they've proven themselves pretty immature in response to uh, connecting the dots and the assessments that they have received. And so this might be a good opportunity to wake up and realize the 21st century is very challenging geopolitically, and it is particularly challenging for democracies in this world, both domestically and internationally. Is there anything you have learned, as we all have as a country, that surprised you? I mean, you've had your nose in this. This is, uh, this is what you, you do. For a lot of Canadians, it's a really kind of a scary awakening. we got enough to be flipped out about right now. And now we're wondering, has our government done enough? And I'm not just talking about this government. I mean, has our government for decades done enough here? Yeah, it's, I think, the privileged circumstances that we've been able to live in yeah. for 
decades in terms of not really having any sort of immediate direct threats to our own political stability, to our prosperity, to our social harmony, or even our territorial integrity in this country. Um, it's what's made us what we are today in terms of one of the most desirable countries in the world uh, to live in. Um, at the same time, look at our allies, uh, especially in the Indo-Pacific, look at a country such as Australia that has long had a very realistic appreciation of the world, given that within 1,500 miles of its borders, you have half the world's population, and most of these countries aren't particularly friendly. And so I think the problem we have in Canada is we um, project from our own experience outward, and this is sort of just standard sort of human nature that we replicate based on our own experience. We think this is how the rest of the world lives. And it turns out the rest of the world actually <laughs> lives in very dangerous circumstances and takes its security very seriously, in part because they've learned very hard lessons in the past about what happens when you don't take it seriously. And I think the issue in this country is I worry that... Uh, we are on the one hand becoming um, increasingly less relevant to our allies because we're not taking the situation seriously. Um, and on the other hand, we're actually putting precisely those attributes that have made this one of the greatest countries and most desirable countries in the world to immigrate to and to live in. We're putting those basic principles in jeopardy by not acting. All right. I'm going to go back to that. It's such an important point. I, I also want to talk about what we know now. I mean, this story broke. There was pushback. The government is the day of the day, as you say, and the liberal prime minister, Justin Trudeau, came out and said the initial story in the Globe and Mail was false. Then we have a to and fro happening from some of the other stories. However, the whistle and the motive of the whistleblower, there was an attempt to make it about that, and they all are important. But what do we know, Christian? As I said, as we began the show here today, cliche, but where there's smoke, there's fire, and there is fire here. We do know that a, what was reported now is part of a big national conversation. What did we know? And also, what did we do about it? So uh, have things been laid bare no matter what the inquiry said? Are there big questions here from that initial report for you? So I think this is sort of the so governments always want to avoid situations uh, where people ask questions about who knew what when and where. And so this is what the government is kind of trying to extricate itself from. And we can see that its approach to that is we're not going to answer any questions and we're not going to tell you anything. And I think unlike the SNC-Lavalin affair, in this particular case, the government feels it can control um, both the facts in quotation marks as well as the narrative because it's national security. So it can hide behind the national security screen, I think unjustifiably so, and say, well, we can't tell you anything because that's all intelligence and it's all highly classified, which of course, much of this material is, uh, or at least sort of the implications of the assessments and so forth are not. So the government could tell us a lot more. The government has chosen not to tell the public a lot more. And I think that has been a political calculus that it has made. But as I also point out in my op-ed, for instance, in the, in the Globe and Mail on this, mm -hmm. that when we've had whistleblowers in the past, as you point out, the smoke has turned out to be that there is actually fire there. And whether mm -hmm. we look at the United States, whether we look at the United Kingdom, whether we look at Australia, and in the bulk of those cases, that has been followed up by some form of commission, of public inquiry, of civil servants systematically examining what happened, precisely to provide opportunities for government to rectify the situation, give the government some options. 
Well, in this case, the government has had options going back to at least the report by the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians in 2019, probably earlier, on which has already decided it is not going to act and it's going to slow pedal uh, the situation. So the government has obviously decided that it's not interested in options and it's not interested in acting um, on this particular matter. Rather, I think it continues to try to sort of try to obfuscate um, and minimize, largely out of its own, I think, political interest. What motivates that is hard to say. Is it that this is a topic that the government is just not interested in in terms of its policy agenda? It wants to talk about other things, whether it thinks that this is going to be too controversial to deal with, so it's easiest just to avoid it, or whether it feels that it can only lose votes, it can't gain votes as a minority government, every day is about survival. Nonetheless, I think the problem here is the government is acting in its own particular will rather than in the best interest of the country. You know, as Canadians, we listen to it all as it began. And, you know, you try to weigh it. And certainly as a journalist, you're, but it's a mess now politically. If they were trying to control it, I, I can't imagine they're high-fiving right now. I mean, know Katie Telford batted away a lot of questions. But for all the reasons that you just listed, this is still out there. Christian, I, I just want to return to something you said in our opening segment there, that around the world, we're becoming less relevant. How important is that context as we look what we're facing here politically and knowledge-wise on this story? Well, certainly at least in a couple of ways. One is that Canada has always proverbially punched above its weight. But of course, in international affairs, there's no class of punching above your weight. You can be a middle power, you can be a superpower, you can be a small country that's not particularly relevant um, at the periphery. And so Canada has done that by uh, investing and proving itself as a worthwhile multiplier because it always had important things to offer. Think about the institutional, international institutions in which Canada invested heavily at the end of, uh, after the disasters of the Second World War. Uh, think about the way we've used our Canadian armed forces to prevent um, major war uh, between superpowers, sometimes known as peacekeeping, which wasn't ever which wasn't ever about really keeping the peace per se in countries. No. It was always about trying to prevent the superpowers from going to war. But of course, over the last 20 years, benign neglect has meant we've had little to offer when our allies and partners have now in the last year and plus uh, come to ask for more. And so that means we just don't have the voice we used to have around the table. We can still sit at the table, but increasingly, it's also that Canada not only does it no longer have a voice at the table or a vastly diminished voice, it also means that to some of the meetings, we're not even being invited anymore. And that means that essentially a government has abrogated its responsibility to be able to assert the national interest of Canada beyond Canada's boundary. It means that we're increasingly drafting behind our partners and allies when it comes to international decision-making. On the domestic front, it means that increasingly people aren't sharing with us and aren't providing to us the sort of intelligence that um, might have made us um, a more important player than in the past. What's being provided to us now are things that are of immediate uh, concern to our own national security, to the security of the continent and uh, to our country. So basically anything that, especially the United States, but our allies also feel they need to share with Canada because uh, it would otherwise weaken Canada too much if they didn't. Um, but the commitment by an ally is that you're, you engage in positive sum gains. That is to say, mm -hmm. everybody contributes, so we're all stronger together. And increasingly, the perception of Canada is that Canada is a weak link, 
um, because Canada doesn't feel it needs to make the investments necessary in order to be stronger together. And so our allies say, that's fine, but they're just going to move on without us. And that yeah, diminishes Canada's influence. Yeah, we're seeing um, organizations come together. We're left out. We took it all for granted. Are they fed up? We're, we're we're kind of seeing that that you know we walk around thinking oh you mentioned that you're with Canada all the allies are thrilled and they all do they like us they like us Sally Field but they are fed up we haven't been paying our way how serious is it. So, look, I don't think that they're fed up, um, in part because Canada's contribution to some extent has always been discretionary. If you look at NORA, there's this perception in Ottawa that the United States need Canada to defend the continent. Well, the reality mm-hmm. is that they don't. Uh, the United States can just do it on their own. They're happy for Canada <laughs> to contribute and to share. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's meant we've had significant influence in Washington as a result. But they don't need us to do this job. Um, similarly, when you're in Europe and you're a major country in Europe, Germany, France, the United Kingdom, uh, but even some countries on the periphery, as we see, for instance, Finland, Denmark, um, uh, Poland, uh, you're a key strategic ally simply of where you're located. The problem with Canada is where we're located is relatively irrelevant to most of our allies and partners. And so that means the way we make ourselves relevant is by being being able to show that we have a significant capacity to contribute so that we can assert our national interest um, and perhaps steer some of the conversations in ways that serve not just the local interest of our particular allies and partners, but also our interests at the same time. But of course, all right, I want to just stop you there for a moment, us, Christian. Then, and yeah, if I could just ask you, you said that we become less relevant. When was that moment? I would say this has been a gradual uh, mm. decline over the last 20 years. And it's been partially that, you know, we've never, I think, recovered from in the 1990s. There was this perception of the peace dividend. Everybody's going to live happily ever, ever after. Everybody's going to be democratic. Everybody's going to be liberal. Everybody's going to be capitalist. Um, and so everybody divested, uh, both in foreign policy generally and in particular in security, intelligence and defense capacities. And then 9-11 came and we realized that, oh, the world is actually a bit more dangerous than, uh, than we realized and than we thought it was. And it wasn't all sort of happy kumbaya um, after all, sort of sit around the fire, uh, the campfire. And, uh, but we kind of uh, still for 20 years had the privilege of it being discretionary. Um, what missions we went on and what force packages we sent on those missions. And so now we no longer have that discretion. If you look at, for instance, at Ukraine, if you look at Arctic security, if you look at the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. but as a result of not really having had sort of this benign neglect of 20 years, now we don't have a whole lot to contribute. And look, other countries have sent a clear signal. If you remember, after the invasion of Ukraine, Germany said it's going to invest $100 billion in defense mm-hmm. as a one-time investment. Now, of course, Germany has watered that down since, but it was a clear yeah, signal from Germany. But they succumbed to the European, pressure, didn't they? They did something. That it, they wanted to send a clear signal mm-hmm. that European security is not going to be decided without yeah. Germany. Um, because they realized that they weren't being taken serious to the extent that they should have. And so the government had a choice uh, over the last year or so to kind of send that clear signal 
But what the government has done is sort of invest a little bit here and a little bit there, sort of mm -hmm. enough to kind of be seen as doing something, but not so much as to perhaps then actually have an honest conversation with Canadians about what Canadian defense, foreign security uh, sort of policy should be. And the problem is that we've always had this very homeopathic stance in this country when it comes in particular to national security and intelligence. Um, and it doesn't appear that the government thinks it's certainly in its political interest uh, to change that. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.